Father, that indeed is our hope, that your power and might is so great in your kingdom that we can be absolutely certain of our future. Lord, I pray that that would secure us in the present. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're back in the book of Psalms this morning. I actually have three more Psalms before we finish book three. So we're getting close. And then I'm not sure exactly where we're going to go after that. Maybe the book of Hebrews, somewhere in the New Testament for a while. Um, But for now, we get to look at Psalm, specifically Psalm 87. It's a shorter psalm, but it's a, it's a remarkable psalm. It's a little bit different, perhaps, than what we've been going through in Book 3 so far. But I want to invite you to turn in your own Bibles to Psalm 87. And would you stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a psalm. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, Selah. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, This one was born there, Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. This is God's word. Praise you, God. please have a seat? I mean, it, it is true when you first read this psalm, it, you kind of scratch your head because it's, it's just so different. It kind of stands out on its own. And as I was thinking about uh, this psalm and what the psalmist is after, it really took me back to thinking about that place that I've mentioned so often to you. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me talk about the place that we go to in Michigan. And uh, if you've been here a long time, you've probably heard me talk about it a lot. You're probably tired of me talking about it. But I'm not going to talk about the specifics of the place other than to say there's something about going there that connects me back to that time of innocence, that time of wonder, you know, when you're a kid, when everything is an adventure. And there isn't any wrong path. You just go and you just enjoy, and life is sweeter. It's as though the stars are brighter, as though the colors are deeper and richer. It's just that all of your experience are so much more enhanced. And, and going back there, to me, we call that you know, our happy place, because it's, it, it's a reconnection with that kind of, of experience, that kind of moment. You know, if you, if I, as I think back to that place, I think of glorious things. That's what I think about. And as you drive on the way there, you'll pass uh, very nearby a, a bakery that's been formed out of an old farmhouse. And in that farmhouse that where the garage doors once came down, they raised them up, or I think they may have removed them all together. And you walk inside where you can buy your homemade cherry pie and your cherry strudel and your cherry jam and your blueberry jam and your raspberry jam and your blackberry jam. And, it, and, and your cherry donuts, and uh, that became a morning ritual. Someone would go and pick up a cherry strudel to have for breakfast, and sometimes two cherry strudels. Who knows how many? They would go fast. And a few years back, we took my mother-in-law for the first time, who would always hear us talking about it year after year after year, and we stopped at that market, 
And one of the talents of the owner there isn't just in her baking, but also in writing. She writes novels. And she would write novels about the experience of being in such a place. She's seeking to capture the magic of the happy place, as it were. And my mother-in-law picked up those books along with so many of my family and friends, and she read it. And I remember her saying to me, now I understand the stories that you've been talking about all of these years as it captured that happy place experience. Uh, not long after graduating from college, one of my college roommates moved up to Michigan. I think he lived in Grand Rapids for a time. And he ran across an author. He met him actually at a book signing and, and uh, thought of me because it was, it was a book that he had written about growing up in that area and the many adventures he would go on with his fishing and floating down rivers and streams and hiking through the woods and the building of forts. And so he got a copy, had it signed, gave it to me, and I remember reading that. And it, it doesn't take place in my happy place, of course, but he's, he's been able to capture that, that, that wonder and excitement of adventure when life just seems to be so much richer and, flory, and, and, and fuller. And it, it's, it's capturing something about the glory of life. And I, I think about that, that if, if I'm going to talk about that, I'm, I'm talking about glorious things of this place. And when you read this psalm, that's what he's talking about. He says, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. There's something about the city of God, this place of Zion, that he's wanting to get across in a song to the people so that in times of darkness and despair, they will remember that there is a place in which that wonder, that healing, the richness and fullness of life exists. And it's out there. And it's for you. And it's meant to encourage you and give you hope. And that's what he sings about in this Psalm. And I wanted to walk through and talk about, well, what's so glorious about it? What makes it a happy place? Because we think of Zion, and we don't really know exactly, well, what, what is Zion exactly? We've heard of Mount Zion. You know, we've heard of Zion talked about in, in various places. Is it Jerusalem? Is it, is it the temple? Is it the specific mountain in Jerusalem? What exactly is Zion? And I think to answer that question, it's best to look at the psalm and, and ask the question, well, what is so glorious about it that makes it Zion? And the first thing we see is why is it so glorious is because God's love is there. The love of God is there in Zion. As you open these verses, you open this psalm, the first thing you read is, On the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Now, we were in Jerusalem in March. And we saw what you would call Mount Zion when we were there. And yeah, it's fascinating because it's full of rich history, but it's not you know, prettier than perhaps other gates that you might see. It's not, even Zion itself as a mountain isn't necessarily taller than other mountains, even in Israel. It's not the tallest place. It's not anything geographically special about Jerusalem or Mount Zion or even those particular gates. What is special about it is the fact that God has decided to set his love there. And that's a significant thing. I mean, you think about what Zion was. Zion was always a destination. It was always an ultimate destination for God's people. Even going back to the time when he first called the people for himself, when he called Abraham, Abraham lived in a foreign land far to the east, 
It says, I'm going to take you to a place, a place where I will be your God, and you and your family, your children, will be my people. And that place, ultimate, that ultimate destination, he calls Zion. So Abraham knew about it. He looked forward to it. He, he lived his whole life ultimately hoping to arrive at that city, that place. And, of course, the story of the Old Testament is telling the story of his family, what happened to them. Well, they did go to the land where Zion would be one day. And they wandered that area, and their family began to grow. They faced a famine where they eventually had to go to Egypt to find food, where one of their relatives had been made next to the, uh, the second most person in charge of all of Egypt, Joseph. And Joseph provided for their family, gave them food. But when both Joseph passed away, another Pharaoh came up who didn't know Joseph or his family, was threatened by the, the multiplying numbers of these children, of these, this family, and so he made them enslaved. And for 400 years, they were enslaved. Still not seeing the, real, the reality of God's promise to Abraham fulfilled. The destination was in store. And yet they heard, God heard their cries for help and relief. And so 400 years later, it's a long time, he raised up a man named Moses who went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Pharaoh, of course, said no. So God brought all these mighty works on display to finally break the back of Pharaoh's resistance to where he finally says, please go. And they go. And he leads them through the Red Sea, leads them to Mount Sinai where he meets with them, gives them the Ten Commandments, speaks to them in the thunder, and also gives Moses instructions to build a tabernacle. We like to think of when he went up on the mountain that he received the Ten Commandments, and he did. But we don't often talk about the other thing that he received, was the instructions to build this, what they call a tabernacle, this tent. This tent that would travel with them. Why were they building a tent? Who was the tent for? Who was supposed to live there? God would dwell there. God would dwell among his people. Why? Because he has set his love upon his people. Now, that temple would be with them, that tabernacle, excuse me, would be with them as they wandered all through the wilderness. And it was hard wandering through the wilderness. They were longing to finally find a resting place, a home, a destination. And eventually, God brings them, after 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, to the edge of the land that he had promised long ago to give to Abraham. They march across the River Jordan into the land and begin to conquer the nations that have settled there, the enemies of God, until finally it culminates under a king by the name of David, who who's finally brings a conquering to all these enemies, including the Jebusites who occupied a place called Jerusalem and the place called the city of David, the Mount Zion, where it existed. So now there exists, under this man who's reflective of someone who has God's own heart, has brought them to a place where they finally have conquered their enemies, to a destination where his son raises up, builds a temple, a place of permanence where the Lord would put his name. And that, as you read about the story of Israel, and you read about David was the man after God's own heart who conquered his enemies, but Solomon, his son, was the one who ushered in a time of wisdom and prosperity beyond anything that had ever existed in the ancient world. Why? because they had reached their destination. They had reached Zion, the place where God had decided to put his love. Now, as I think about you know, my happy place that I've talked about, this place in Michigan, this little lake that we go to, this little cabin on the lake that we go to, 
And what made it so great as a kid was uh, uh, partly what I saw happen to my father when we would get there. My father grew up every summer spending his summers there, you know, doing his own exploration, all the things that I did as a kid. And, you know, throughout the school year and the, the rest of the year when we lived back in Oklahoma, you know, he was busy. He was working hard. He was trying to earn a living. He was dealing with stress and anxiety and the difficulties and struggles of life. But when he got there, it was like he became a teenager all over again. It was like what had been gone for the other 11 and a half months of the year came back, that twinkle in his eye. And his laugh would be from his belly. And we saw a completely different man. Why? What we saw and experienced was the love of this man. We knew about it. We knew he loved us the rest of the year, of course, because he's working hard. He's supplying for us. He's doing what we need him to do. But it was there that we got to bask in it. And we just felt it. And I just wanted to be with my dad because he became this joy to be around. And it was so contagious it just overflowed in fact i brought with me this mug this morning and you can't see it but it's a little caricature that one of his college roommates drew of him it sits on the wall in the cabin up there last october i was there closing the cabin with my sister and my mother and i didn't tell him what i was doing but i snapped a little picture of it put it on a mug and gave it to him for christmas and uh probably brought a few tears to their eyes as my dad passed away three three years ago now but that's what made that place so great, was here's a man whose love could be visibly palpable in his presence. This is Zion. What makes Zion so great? This is the where the love of God resides. So that when you go there, you see the twinkle of his eye. You feel the, the effervescence of his presence. And it overflows into you with such joy. You know, David had moments of experience, as we read about in the Psalms, when you go, for example, and read Psalm 23, a very famous psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not be in any want. All of the ultimate longings that I always feel my whole life in the presence of God will be gone. I will not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He walks me beside still waters. He restores my soul. In Psalm 16, he talks about there are, there are, I can't, I can't remember it now, there are, Tom, you got to help me out, where's Tom? There are joys in the presence, the right hand of God the Father, there is a joy that is uncomparable. I'm, I know I'm butchering, the, but that's the essence of what he's talking about in Psalm 16. At your right, this is what he said, at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So when the psalmist is writing about Zion, glorious things of you are spoken, what he's talking about is there is glory to be seen because this is where the love of God has settled. This is where you know it and this is where you feel it. So that's the first thing that makes it glorious. This is where the love of God is. The second thing that we see that makes it glorious is, is this is your home. This is your home. It is fascinating to, to read what he says and, of course, how he makes it their home. He uses this interesting language. So, for example, in verse 5 and verse 6, he says, And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, This one was born there, Silah. 
Now, the, the record and registry of God's people is something that we're, you're familiar with. You know, if you're a student of the Bible and you've, you've made this decision, I want to read through the Bible, whether it's in a year or three years or just for the first time ever, and you get to places like the book of Numbers or you get to places like First or Second Chronicles or some, even in Ezra and Nehemiah, you run across these lists of people's names, these genealogies. And, you know, when you're in a Bible reading plan, it, you just kind of skim it because you don't know these names, you don't know these people. Occasionally, when you might read a familiar name of someone that you've read other stories about in the Bible, but for the most part, they're just a list of names to you. And it's not that you need to stop and carefully read each name, but the fact that there are lists of names in the Bible is so significant. As he says here, the Lord records and registers the people. It is a register of who it is that belongs to Zion. And what's interesting is what he says about them. Oh, and let's back up again. Also, the, there's another place we read about books with names in it, and that's in the very end of the Bible, you know, the place you go where you find all the answers. And it's called the Book of Life. It's called the Book of Life. We find that there. And how do you know if you get into this new heaven and new earth? Your name has to be recorded in the Book of Life. In Nehemiah chapter 7, it's interesting. Nehemiah was a man who lived after, the, the, after Jerusalem had fallen to Babylon. They'd been carried off into captivity. And 70 years later, they were, they were making their return back to the land of Israel. And Nehemiah led a group of exiles back to Jerusalem who set about to rebuild the walls. And at one point, there, there's this dispute among people about who gets to live there. And so they have to go back to look whose name is on the register. Do we find you recorded as one who is to be a recipient, inheritor of the promise of this place? So you have to have your name written there in order to be there. And there's, this is not the only book, by the way, that's open. It, to expand on this, I think it helps to put it in context to go also in the end of Revelation, Revelation 21, to see another book is opened, another book that's opened first, really. Because in Revelation 21 is describing the ultimate time when God is going to bring judgment upon all of mankind for, all, for everything. So throughout time and history, there's been a record of everything that is going against God's covenant, God's character. By the way, that's what the covenant is. It's revealing the character and nature of God. You and I were created to be image bearers of God. So every time we fail to reflect that image, you could say that's a violation of the covenant, the violation of why we exist, and it gets recorded in this book. You know, Jesus says at one time to those, he says, everything that you whisper in secret and private will be one day shouted from the mountaintops. Every wicked thought you have, word that you say, deed that you do, gets recorded in this book. And it says the books are opened, and everyone is judged according to what is in the book. But then he goes on to say, but there's another book called the Book of Life. And if your name is in that one, it trumps everything. Because all those things that you are guilty of were satisfied and paid by Jesus on the cross. And that's how your name gets listed in the Book of Life. And it's another display of God's love. 
But this is the, really the point I wanted to make about that. Well, that's how you get in, of course, to Zion, because God has, in his sovereign determination, before the very foundation of the world, has written your name into this book. And, of course, the rest of your life, he is at work in your life to steer you to the point where you are recognizing who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for you and applying it to your heart and your life. And we do that unbeknownst to the... We, we're unaware that God is working on us. All we're aware is that he's bringing us through hard times... <coughs> He's bringing us to a point in our life where we realize the only hope there is, is in Jesus Christ. And so we say a prayer asking God, God, would you be my God? Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you make me one of your children? So from our perspective, it looks like we have taken the steps to enter, but all the time we're realizing God has been at work bringing us to that point so that we will see, finally, our name is written there. But this is the great thing, what he describes. He says it like this in this psalm. This one was born there. And I love that. You think, that's kind of weird because those people weren't literally born there. So what does he mean by that statement? And I think this is what he means by that. I think what he's saying is like, this is where you were born to be. This is who you were born to be. You want to know who you are? You're never going to know who you are other than who you will be when you are in Zion. That's who you were born to be. You know, we go through our whole lives trying to figure out who we are. And we wrestle with what culture continues to try and tell us who we are. Or the world tries to shape us into being. And it's, it is a wrestling match. And it goes on probably till the day we die and we finally enter into God's presence. But we have moments and hints, who are we meant to be? This is who we were meant to be. People who live in the land of Zion, where God's love is present. Because in that place, there will no longer be longings that are unfulfilled. There will no longer be wants. There will no longer be pain or tears. Remember, the tears will all be wiped away. So, uh, Isaiah occasionally gives us a little bit of a hint of what this is like. Isaiah chapter 24. I think it's 24. Did I put that? Oh, sorry, 25, wrong page. He says, and he's speaking about Zion, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up in this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. In another place, in Isaiah 60. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. 
There is these descriptions, and you know, as I think back again, likening it to this experience that you know, our growing up, this happy place, when we would go to the lake, it was as though the cares and anxieties of the world were left behind. They were left back in Oklahoma, and we became different people. I can't tell you how many people I've run into there who just, they, they, they understand the idea that I like who I am when I'm here. And I don't like who I am when I'm not here. It was as though all the things that would hold me back at home, you know, fear of not being accepted, fear of failing, fear of this or that, or just being anxious and frustrated by the struggles that we go through in life, but it's there, it's like all of that was gone, and I felt free to be and do whatever it is that came to mind. And I, I, I always was so sad when we left because I knew I was going back to this person I didn't want to be. Zion is the place where we discover who are you? Who were you born to be? This one and that one were born here. This is what they were born for. That's Zion. Glorious things of you are spoken. And we mentioned again the idea, the last thing about it, this idea is that there's, there's God's love there, first of all. Your home is there, second of all. And third of all, and this may be the hardest one to swallow, your enemies are there. Your enemies are there. Oh, did I just lose my spot? Forgot to bookmark that spot. So look right in the middle of the psalm, verse 4. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. Again, scratch your head and think, what? What is he talking about there? Because who was Babylon? Well, Babylon was the nation that came and wiped out Jerusalem. Besieged it for months. Horrid, horrid things happened when Babylon came. Carrying the southern nation of Judah off into exile. And who was Egypt? By the way, Rahab is another familiar name for Egypt. Who was Egypt? But the nation that enslaved them for 400 years and oppressed the people. And yet, he's saying, Rahab and Babylon are there. Same thing with Philistia, Tyre, and Cush at some, to some degree. Who were the Philistines? But the famous enemies that existed in the time of the judges and, the, and were the enemies that David often fought. I mean, Goliath was a Philistine. And as you read through a lot of the Old Testament, most of the time you're thinking about all these nations as evil oppressors and God just needs to wipe them out and do away with them. But then there are some moments, occasionally, when the curtains turn back, uh, turn back, you read about it in Isaiah and Jeremiah as well, where you see these enemy nations alongside Israel with equal status. They will say of them, this one was born there. Now how can we possibly read that in the Psalms? Other than to get some ideas, how far does God's love reach? all the way to the enemies of God. And that should be comforting, especially as God, little by little, pulls back the curtain that you might see how dark your heart really is. And then you are comforted to know that he was willing to go all the way into this enemy territory 
and bring those enemies in and grant them the status of sons. And I was thinking practically, how do I, how do I get at this and what is the practicality of this? And the church is a great microcosm of showing this because in the church you have people from different walks of life, people from different socioeconomic statuses, people from different ethnic backgrounds, even people from different political perspectives coming together. And the reason that they can coexist with all these differences is because something greater has swallowed up these differences. And you know, when we go, when we go to the lake up there in Michigan, we're not the only family that does that. There's a whole bunch of families along the row of these cabins that have done the same thing for more than 100 years. So I grew up with their kids. Every summer I'd see them. And what's interesting is some of them live in Chicago, some of them live in, in Kansas City, some of them live in, in you know, North Carolina or Miami or Ohio. So they're from all over the country, some all the way out in California or Oregon. And some of them, one of them works a heavy, he's a heavy equipment construction on highways, running those great big giant you know, caterpillars and things. Another one's a lawyer. You know, another one is a, a commercial real estate executive. Another one is a teacher. So they do all these different vast variety of jobs. And what, another thing that I find fascinating is, is they all come from vastly different political leanings. Some are activists for every left-wing cause you could ever see. And some are activists for you know, the Fox News and the conservative viewpoint, no matter what it's supposed to be. And when we get together, what we find is that none of that matters. Because we're family. It's like the differences are swallowed up. It's not that they're not there, they still are there. Now, when we get into this place where we see our enemies alongside us, I think, yes, there will be a time when we're confronted with all the wrong ways we looked at the world and held on to, and it's going to seem silly to us. But I think at the same time, there are things that we see through our lens because of our unique perspective and history and, and place where we grow up and experiences that we can see better than other people can see. And there are things that they can see about the world better than we can see. And I think we are going to benefit from their perspective as they will benefit from our perspective. So that the experience that we have in this place will be so much richer than it would ever be if we were just by ourselves. It's like, we've talked about this the last few weeks, when Jesus says to his disciples, they will know you're my disciples by your love for each other. Because that will be your firmest first identity. You may still be a zealot or a Pharisee or an Essene. You may still be a Roman citizen or not a Roman citizen. You may still be a free man or a slave or a Greek or a Jew. Things that would normally send people away from each other. But all those things get swallowed up within Zion. And your one identity, the person that you are, is a son or daughter of God. Glorious things of Zion are spoken. Why? Because God's love is there. Because that is your home and that's who you find out who you really are. And even God's enemies are there. And how is that possible? Because God was willing to pay the ultimate price 
that our names might be written in the book of life at the cost of Jesus, his son, paying the debts that we deserved when that book of, of deeds is open, crediting us with the righteousness that was required to live in the presence of God. So I hope that you're encouraged this morning when you face the difficulties and struggles and anxieties of life, there is a destination, there is a Zion, and it has your name in it, and it's waiting for you. And it gives perspective on the here and now. Because here and now, we are wandering through the wilderness, facing times of famine and want and thirst and frustration and oppressors and enemies, and it's hard. And we often don't like the people that we find ourselves being. But that's not who we're born to be. And there is a promise of that person finally being revealed when we finally reach Zion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we can sing songs about Zion and be hopeful of what you have in store for our ultimate destination. We're thankful that you pay the ultimate price so that our names might be written in those registers. Registers that says, yes, indeed, we are citizens in this kingdom. We belong here. We were born for this. Lord, I pray that as we go through the struggles of the wilderness, that you would keep this in the forefront of our mind and encourage us by it. In Jesus' name, amen.